Glad you're here, man. Good to see yeah, you. I put this hat on just for you. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Intentional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you still grieving the Super Bowl loss? Uh, no, I forgot about it. Thanks for bringing it back up. <laughs> good deal, good deal. Hey, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll get going uh, with uh conversation here with Eddie. God, thank you for this chance. And God, we just pray that we continue to uh, learn, to listen, and God, that we just leverage our own gifts, talents, abilities, um, just the influence that we have, God, to make a change, to bring justice here, to bring peace on earth, uh, to establish your kingdom here. God, thank you for Eddie, uh, for just opening up himself to allow for this conversation to happen. And God, we just thank you that we are all uh, brothers and sisters in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Just tell us a little bit more about your, your background. And um, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking I should do that. I don't think everybody knows me. <laughs> and I, I'm not real good at introducing myself. I kind of just, I don't know. I have weird personalities where I'm just like all over the place. But um, yeah, I'm Eddie. Um, I have a really uh, weird background. Um, I actually graduated from Northwestern. I don't really say that proudly, but <laughs> they graduated from Northwestern, uh, St. Paul. Um, that's kind of where my whole, um, racial justice and social justice started. Cause you know, I grew up black, so I understood, you know, racism and things like that, but I understood it from a sense of bad things happening to me, but I didn't understand it from a point of a system and how that works. And then even so adding in the component of Christianity, going to a Christian school, I felt like I was extremely blindsided. I just had no idea any of the stuff I was going to experience would happen. Um, I was there. Uh, let me see. While I was there, I was very, very, very active in um, a lot of um, racial reconciliation and uh, race relations conversations and things like that. Um, it was a group called It's Time. Um, I don't think they even have that stuff anymore. I think they got rid of it all when we left. <laughs> but um I was the, for the student body, we had created a, a position called Director of Cultural Unity. I was the first person on that. Um, I started the um, the African-American group. It was called BOSS. It's called Beyond Your Social Skin, just talking about issues of, that we have as Black people. Um, did that for several years. We did a lot of different trainings, and we put on a lot of um, presentations to the student body and things like that. And then after school, I, I graduated with a degree in social sciences. I was gonna do a teaching, but then I what didn't really fall in love with the education system. So I moved, because I still had a passion for people. So just social sciences, uh, um, start working at the Noka Hennepin School District as a student learning advocate. And basically um, that was bridging the gap between students of color and um, teachers and staff and stuff like that. And so same type of work. Um, then I end up going to where I'm at now um, it's a charter school, Brooklyn Park. Um, and I kind of do a combination of a lot of things there. That role is, as well as far as with we're predominantly black and African students. I think it's somewhere like 98%. Um, but majority of the teachers are white. And so still being that advocate, um, we've done a lot of um, staff development and training and um, building relationships with kids of color and things like that um, for the past, I think, four years we've done staff um training equity training um i'm probably missing some stuff but 
some of that stuff. So that is my background with this. Um, I, I don't know. It's just something I just, I kind of stopped doing it after Northwestern. I had to take a break because I was pretty burnt out and I was just really angry all the time. And so I said, I'm never doing this again, but I guess recently I've been more active because I've noticed a lot of kids that I've mentored. Oh yeah. I didn't mention I was a youth pastor for 10 years. Um, so a lot of my kids that I started with when I started being a youth pastor, uh, they're older now. And so they're facing a lot of this stuff and they're out there in the protests and things like that. So it's kind of rejuvenated me a little bit to see, and they're asking me different things and stuff. So I'm like, okay, maybe I can give this a little bit of a try again. So, <laughs> wow. so I'm here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, when we talked on the phone the other day, that Monday, yeah, Monday, you were just sharing, you know, just all the different um, kind of perspectives you, you were kind of processing at, with just love you to share even just a little bit about that too. just, um, you know, that we're all complex people and, and you are too with friends on the police force, as well as a mentor to teenagers and then as a young dad and figuring out your place. Um, so yeah, I think just even kind of sharing you know, what, how have you been processing all of this as you've talked to your friends who are cops, friends who are protesting, you know, how are you counseling, uh, you know, young um, students, uh, and then just kind of processing it with your wife at home too. So just, yeah, anything you can share with that. Um, yeah, it's been really, really, really interesting. I really didn't even all the way think about it that much until I was talking to you about it. I was talking to Tiffany like, dang, this is weird. Um, yeah, one of my best, best friends, like, I call him my brother. My kids call him uncle. He's one of my best friends. Uh, he's like my little brother. He's actually on the Minneapolis police department. Um, he's in the gang unit. And I was just talking to him. They don't even, they literally were told they don't get time off. They just are just working around the clock. He's somewhere around, uh, I believe he said 70 hours of overtime. It's just like this nonstop. And he is just a complete wreck. And then, so I've been talking with him pretty much every day to check on him. Um, then I have another friend that I um, did some work with in, in college. That's a, uh, I think he's a sergeant in Minneapolis and um, been talking with him a little bit and he's really burnt out. Um, and then cause I'm a black male. So I have my feelings on how this whole thing works. Um, I'm a father, a husband. Um, something I was telling Pastor Eric is that like, I've been wanting to go on a jog. I've put on like 12 pounds since the quarantine and my wife doesn't even want me to go on a jog. And we've even kind of had little arguments like, I want to go jogging. I'm fine, but she's genuinely scared or even just going outside. We just went for a walk today and she's just like, are you sure you want to go over there? Are you sure you want to do that? So this constant, like just fear of worrying of something possibly happening. Um, so that lens, I have all these kids asking me, what should we do? My, um, another really, really close friend of ours, like another brother, um, he actually almost got hit by the semi on the freeway. And he literally called me right after that's I found out about it before it was on the news because right after he literally was calling me, you can hear the, the, the tremble in his voice. He was so shaken up talking about how they almost got hit. And he was like, people are trying to get the guy right now. And the police are like, he's commentating all that while it's happening. He had to like jump over the wall or something from the freeway, something crazy. I still haven't even got to process all the way with him with that because he's just been shaken up. So it's just, a lot. The um, a guy. I don't know if you guys heard about the guy that um got killed at the pawn shop. That's one of my best friends from high school's cousin, and I'm really close with that family. So uh, it's a lot, man. A couple of kids that I, I mentored in um at a camp again. They live in Chicago. She got hit in the face with a baton by a police officer, and she sent me the picture. She has like a big 
like big gash in her eye. They were out there and they got hit from protesting. It's it's just it's a lot. So I've my brain has just been all over the place trying to process. And then ultimately I'm a Christian and just from that lens and trying to see things through empathy and looking at the big picture. I'm a really heavy thinker and analyzing things. So it's it's just been a lot. It's been pretty, pretty draining. But I mean, it's it's nothing new really, to be honest. This is the life we live. So unfortunately. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, as as a follower of Jesus, as someone who was a youth pastor, you know, um, you know, your faith, how are you processing all that's going on right now? Are you able to pray? And I, I know just like all of us, you, your faith journey's had ups and downs. You know, I, I heard someone say, you know, lamenting is the prayers that we pray when our prayers aren't answered. And, and so this is a time of, of anger and lament towards God. And, and he listens to those with all the feelings that you've had during these last couple of weeks, how have you been able to process those? Is, is that something you're able to go to God in prayer? Is that something that you've, you felt like you've stayed away from him? Have you gone to him? How have you processed this with your faith? Um, I'm at a weird place when it comes to prayer in my life. Um, I feel like growing up, I was taught to pray and it was like a selfish perspective where you're just praying for things you want or things you want to see or, you know, the blessing or a breakthrough or something like that. And I found that that just doesn't work for me. I'm not going to say what it does for other people, but I just don't find that to work for me. And I don't really necessarily believe that. Um, I believe that, you know, God has a plan for my life and I believe that God is in control of my life. My steps are ordered by God and I want his will to be done in my life. And so I'm getting to a place of just being content of what's going on, knowing that God is in control of my life. And if I'm wholeheartedly trying to seek his will and do what he wants, then I have to be okay with good and bad, knowing that it all works out for my good. So how praying fits into that, I'm still trying to figure that out. I don't have that answer. I'm definitely trying to learn that right now. So praying to me is really just communicating with God. And when stuff happens, I'm at a point when I don't really like, oh God, oh, we're in trouble. I kind of just, okay, what do we need to do? How do we solve this? What can be done? What conversations need to be had? I think my biggest thing that I'm processing through is empathy because not getting mad at people for where they are and trying to show love no matter where people are or how they're feeling or what they see and being empathetic and trying to help people process. I think that's what my biggest struggle is because a lot of times you get frustrated or you can um, even sometimes be judgmental, like, well, they just don't want to learn. You know, battling those different thoughts as opposed to, oh, God, why, or anything like that. That's good. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. Tiffany's asking me something. It's in the freezer. It's in a, it's in a, um, like a, it's like the other container, not the bag. She said hi. <laughs> hi. Hi, Tiffany. Um, I got a couple questions that were emailed in. And so uh, I'm going to hit you with some of these. And then we'll take questions from people that are on the call, too. Um, the first one, someone emailed and asked, what does it mean to you? And how does it come across to you when a person says, I don't see color? I just see humans. What do I think about? I probably should preface everybody. <laughs> um, I'm. I'm a very open person. I, I was raised in California, so I, I didn't really get hit with the Minnesota nice bug. I'm like, I feel like the way my perspective is being open and honest, but respectful is the only way things get done. 
and I probably should have said this at the beginning, I would strongly encourage everybody. I mean, I know it's a tough thing, but we just sometimes have to take a leap of faith and just put yourself out there because there's no growth without being honest. And, you know, I put my honesty out there. I might offend someone, but I don't have any problem apologizing because that's not my intent. I've had to apologize before. Um, I mean, it's definitely not my intent, but at the end of the day, when we're talking about sensitive and serious issues, especially things like that, there, uh, you know, there's room for that, but that's how you grow. That's how you, um, it's funny, you were mentioning that in that um, thing that you said. Um, what is that, the study thing, the, what is it called, Pastor Eric? The, it was a personality test or something. Oh, the Enneagram, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Enneagram. yeah you had said that. I was like, yep, I do that sometimes. So I apologize in advance. It's definitely not my intentions. A hundred percent, this is all love and I, I wouldn't be doing it to, if I didn't really think that I could be helpful or if you guys couldn't uh, possibly benefit or something. So not trying to cause any issues. But um, I definitely do not go with the whole colorblind thing. I believe that Jesus made us all, God made us all who we are for a reason. And it wasn't on accident. And the way that we look is intentional. And I believe it's all beautiful. And I celebrate difference. I think that we can love each other and and um, grow from differences. So by saying, I don't see color, is saying you don't see me and what comes with me. And so no race or color does not dictate how I treat you, but I can't ignore that it's there. And to be honest, if you grow up in the United States of America and you're gonna have stereotypes or you're gonna have thoughts about someone's look, that's just, that's what comes with the package when you are a part of this country. And to act like you don't have them, then you can never fix them. But to identify and say, hey, yeah, I have these. When I see people, I see white people, I think things. When I see black people, I think things. But I'm not going to pretend like they're not there. I'm going to say, no, that's not it. I'm going to put positive things in the place of those thoughts because that's the only way that you can grow. So I definitely am not for the whole colorblind thing. Yes, we are human, but every human is different. And when you say stuff like, you know, I don't see color. You're literally telling me you don't see me because, and you're telling me, I know that's not true because I'm obviously, I don't look like you obviously. So that's my thoughts on that. That's good. That's good. Uh, another question that was emailed in, uh, when watching the George Floyd video, what was it that made you believe it was racially motivated decision to continue restraining him in this method? As a white person, I saw the death of a black man at the hands of police, but no specific action of the LEOs made me believe it was racially motivated. What am I not seeing that you do? Again, this is not me. This is a question emailed in. Um, yeah. Um, no, I can understand that. It's, it's, that's why I, I'm going to say this word 900 times before this is over. Empathy. You have to see people's perspective. Like, you'll never understand why people come to a conclusion unless you understand the shoes that they walk in. And when it's something that's a trend, or I put a Facebook post up and it, it, it kind of broke my heart because it was, a question was asked, when, um, how old were you when a cop put a gun on you? And all of my friends, a majority of them are um, African-American or Latino or something like that. They were commenting on it. And I thought it was sad that the question is when instead of if, and it was just an, a flooding of people telling their stories of when they got a, a gun pulled on them. And it's like, when that's your life, when that's your experience, I had another friend of mine, we were talking about police encounters and he got pulled over so many times and put into a back of a police car. He thought it was protocol. 
when I was explaining to him that I didn't get in the back seat, he was like, wait a minute, isn't that what they're supposed to do? He literally thought it was protocol. There's a obvious difference between how people of color are treated by law enforcement as opposed to white people. You go watch videos. There's so many videos where white people are, they're doing everything. I literally just before this was watching a video where they were like trying to get this guy out and then he ended up taking the baton and he's hitting them with the baton. And he was never tased. He was never shot. And it's like, there's so much extra that goes into making sure nothing happens to this person. But then when it's a person of color, it's just like, oh, I'm scared. Boom. And so you can't help but to think it's racially motivated. Um, you just you just can't help but to think when it's something that's commonly happening. At the end of the day, can we for sure 100% say that that was his intent? We don't know. But if you're looking at the patterns and you're looking at how things are handled, the patterns of how they're handled, I mean, you you it's a very, very, very valid point, in my opinion. That's good. That's good. Um, another question that was emailed in says, in previous deaths, I've heard and said, well, he had a weapon or he was committing a crime. So that's part of the risk of their lifestyle. I often don't see response from black people addressing these statements. Does that not matter that the person was being a criminal when their death occurred? And if so, why? Are white people missing the mark here? Are black people, are we all, where's the happy ground? So I think she's asking, you know, if, if someone's committing a crime and the police use uh, this kind of force against them, isn't that then um, they're kind of bringing this on themselves? <laughs> oh, sorry, I had to filter myself. Um, pretty sure that Crime is very evident in the United States of America. And if we were to look up stats, I don't have those stats, but I would imagine that the death penalty is at the lowest end of consequences for crimes that are happening in the United States of America. And so my point is, regardless of what criminal activity is being done, when did police have the power to just execute people or pass judgment? I, I don't know if you guys have seen Judge Dredd, but People are not on the street passing judgment. That's not how things work. And so this idea that, and um, um, being criminal, like he he was with the George Floyd, he had a counterfeit $20 bill. So, I mean, if we get killed over $20, counterfeit $20 bills, I mean, hey, I, I was a kid. I stole more than $20 worth of candy out the store. I'm glad I didn't get killed for it. So, I mean, in that sense, I think that also has a lot to do with the portrayal of black people in the media, especially black men and the criminalization of the black man. I would highly recommend if any of you have Netflix to go watch 13th. 13th is a documentary that breaks down basically the history of the United States. Um, and it kind of gives you historical points that develops the mindsets that we have today. And it talks about, First in slavery, the dehumanization of a people, and then after slavery, the criminalization of a people. And a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the narratives that are painted in society that portrays that. And it doesn't only affect how white people or other races look at black people, but it also affects how black people look at themselves. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so it's really interesting to look at, but that plays into this question because criminal crime happens all the time. Police are trained to deal with crime. Why is it that when crime, when black, a black person committing crime and the police have to engage, is there always this huge situation when 
it's not happening all the time. And what is resisting arrest? And what is fear for my life? Like, these are things that are getting thrown out all the time, but it's like, what does that mean? And have you ever been in a situation where you have been wrongly accused or wrongly convicted of something or when someone's trying to just, oh, well, get out the car. How many of you would just react if a cop said, get out the car and put your hands behind your back and you don't feel like you did anything wrong? You're just going, okay, officer, and you're just going to go. No, it's humiliating. You want to know what the heck is going on. And so by when Black people are speaking up, well, what did I do? You get about three what did I do's and then it becomes forceful. It becomes, you're resisting, get out. And now it's like, what the heck are you doing? And so a lot of that is reaction. But if you've never experienced that and you've never been in those shoes, then it's easy to look back and say, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? But I've seen, I've seen, and that's not all white people. I'm just like my saying, perspective and what I've seen. I've seen white people, a cop pull them over for speed, like they did something or something. They're just going off on the cops. And I'm looking like, oh my God, how is he doing that? Because I know we can't do that. So, hey. That's good. Yeah, thank you. That's good. Uh, I got one more question emailed in. Um, last week, uh, Josh Olson, our, 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 the other pastor at Mosaic, and we had a Facebook Live conversation and uh, spent some time praying. And, and uh, so someone asked, uh, they, they said, Josh referred to his experience of, of feeling not really belonging or being accepted uh, since he's both black and white. Uh, and they said, I've heard this referred to as levels of blackness in the past. Can you explain this to us people? White people are just white people regardless of shade. So I don't understand this level of blackness. Well, if you, I don't know how much of any of you have ever looked into slavery and the like in depth, not just, oh, there were slaves, but when you really look into slavery in depth and you understand like slavery was bad, but the worst component of slavery was, was mental. It wasn't even the physical, they used the physical, but majority of it was geared to mentally enslave and make them completely dependent on uh, their masters. And one thing that they did was crossbreed it. I, it sucks I have to even use that terminology, but that's literally what it was. They were treated like animals. They were crossbred. And they literally created different shades to create division. And so the lighter ones that were closer to looking white had more privileges. They were in the house. That's where you get the term house Negro or something like that. And they had more privileges. They were still slaves, but they got treated better. And as you got darker, you were treated worse. And so even in the black community, you hear a lot of black is bad. I have to talk to kids all the time. They're, you black this, look how dark you are. And I'm like, why is that bad? But they've adopted the fact that they're too dark or I don't want to be in the sun, I'm going to get too black. Like they literally are saying these things. And so that's a part of what is stemmed from slavery, the residual trauma, the residual effect that is today. And so you do get that. Whereas you got people who are half and actually um, a lot of people don't know this. My mom is actually half white and half black. My grandmother is actually from Spain. She's Spain and Portuguese. She thinks she's black, but hey, she had nine black kids. So I guess, I guess she got some clout with that. But um, so that, that is intentional. And that is something that is what you see. If you look at a lot of different other countries or cultures that come from other countries that are not necessarily African-American, but Africans are um, just any other countries that come over, they're way more united. They'll come in, they'll have one house, they'll support one person to come out and then they'll live in a house and they'll support each other. They'll support each other's business and they'll send money back home to, you know, it's like a system of support. 
But because we came here and it was such division, we were divided, we're, families were taken away from, it was intentionally strategic to get the, the women and the men away. So because of all of that, there's a great division and it's never been addressed. And anytime there has been pockets of success, like you got Black Wall Street, which was a thriving Black community that if what happened there never happened, who knows where Black people will be? But they had some form of success. They had some form of unity and they were growing and it got, it was a massacre. They got completely torn down with no convictions to this day. And so, and that was only in 19, what, like 20 something or 30 and something like that. So it's not even that long ago. So it's like, that's part of what stems from slavery. It's intentional. And it's something that definitely needs to be worked on and fixed along with a lot of other issues. Yeah. Um, Black Wall Street, that's down in Tulsa, right? Oklahoma? Yeah. 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 If, if people haven't read up on that, like, um, you really should. Um, I just, I saw something on Twitter, a post of, was, was that the Tulsa massacre um, in your history books? It wasn't in mine, no, and um, it's not taught in a lot of uh, places. So definitely look that up. It's pretty eye-opening. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, let's open it up. Those are the questions I got emailed in. Um, uh, you can either type your question in the chat, and I'll read it off, or um, I think you can unmute your mic. And uh, yeah, we just love to take any questions. I know we got a couple teenagers on here. Uh, just uh, some others uh and so yeah let me who's who's got a question for for eddie um and let me say i'm i'm really open like there's pretty much no question you're gonna ask that's gonna offend me i've pretty much heard a lot of it i would just encourage you just be open i'm very 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 open to whatever like i said one of the biggest thing that god has been working with me on is empathy you can't be blamed for something you don't know i don't want anybody to blame me for something i don't know and so i can't blame anybody for something they don't know but I can blame you for not having the courage to speak up. You have to speak up and get those questions answered because you can't grow if you don't. And so use this time, this opportunity. I don't have all the answers and I'm not claiming to be an expert by any means. And I don't necessarily speak for all black people, but I do have experience and I do have something to offer with it and I can do my best. And if I don't know, I definitely know some people who could get you an answer. That's good, that's good. Um, who's got a question for, for Eddie? Um, Hey, Eric, this is Lisa. Yeah. So building on a question is a resource that I've shared before, and I would really like to know Eddie's perspective on how I can better share this resource as well as additional resources to help especially youth understand the psychology of institutional racism on black children. So the resource I have is the doll test, and there's a whole, I think it was on PBS recently um but the whole um unfolding of brown versus board of education and the impact and influence of the doll test on what that does to children um eddie what is your insight into that specific i don't know if you've seen the the program or i um but in sharing that resources and other additional resources that can help others understand what racism and institutionalized racism does to black children. And did I hear you correctly when you said the doll test? Yeah. Okay. I, I love that test, actually. The first time I watched it, it actually made me cry. And it was before I had yeah. kids. Then I made a vow that that would never be my daughter. And so... <laughs> 
I have a lot of stories of being in a in a um in a store hour where I'm like, nope, you gotta get a black doll. And she was like, why? And we're having these conversations and so many people are in the out uncomfortable because my daughter doesn't know. She's like, well, what's wrong with the white doll? And so we're just trying to encourage like, hey, like, it's not about white people not being good, but you, I want you to see you. I want you to know that you're beautiful and that the way your hair is, is beautiful. You don't have to have Rapunzel's hair. You know, you don't have to have uh, um, Anna and Elsa's hair. Like your hair is beautiful. Your hair looks good. And so that's been a very con- conscious thing that we and me and my wife have been doing with our kids. Um, are you asking what, how should that be presented? Am I hearing that correctly? That's correct. And then any additional similar things to I'll test. I think like 13, we're going to sit down and watch that. Um, other resources that can help educate and continue the conversation. Yeah, the thirteenth is a good one. I, what? How? Eight? What age group? What? What age? What age? I showed eighth graders. That's probably as low as I would go. Okay. And these are eighth graders. Again, these are eighth graders. Majority of them are people of color. So that was another thing. I don't know exactly. You know, eighth grade. It can be depending on what the kids are. So you'd have to probably watch it first and use discretion. Um, but the doll test is good ones. Um. I don't know stuff. There's a lot of stuff out there. I just seen one and I shared it. Somebody, I think Ray Allen, basketball, a uh, former basketball player shared it. And it was like an easy breakdown of systemic racism. And it was like, you know how they do the little animation things. I mean, they're all over the place, especially right now. They're just literally everywhere. Um, books to read. Um, I always recommend um, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? That's a really good starter book. Um, if you want to know more advanced type stuff, I would say you can read, um, what is the book called? The The New Jim Crow. Um, that's a really good one. What is her name? I know her last name is Alexander. I can't think of her. I got to actually hear her speak in person. That was great. But that book is amazing. Um, so yeah, just stuff like that. I think after you read a couple things, then it kind of opens up the door for more stuff. But the the doll test is definitely a good one. Uh, Kristen asks, Eddie, uh, how exhausting is it to be the black guy? Um, and maybe she's referring to like having white friends or, um, uh, I get what she's talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, I've gotten to a place now where I don't allow myself to be the black guy. It was very exhausting in, um, in college. Um, but I've learned that well, there, I, I put myself in different situations. There's people who want to just talk to you because they want their guilt to be appeased, and I don't really engage in that. I genuinely will put my energy and effort to people where I, could, I believe that there's a genuineness of wanting to know. But I've had a lot of people who just hijack your time because they want you to make them feel better, and there is no feeling better like that. It doesn't work that way. And so, I've, like I said, I've, as I've gotten older, I've learned to maneuver between those. And people that I've invested in or that I've seen investing, especially since I work in the education system, so I've seen investing kids and do things, then I typically invest in there and I don't have to be the black guy. And so it's cool. So I, I haven't been exhausted at all as far as from that perspective. Cool. Uh, Kenton, uh, uh, he's a teenager at our church. He asks, do you remember the first time getting called the N-word and what was your reaction? That's real funny because 
I have a very different perspective on that. I don't really get, I usually laugh. I'm trying to remember when, I remember one time I was in a car, we were coming from somewhere, I think by Oakdale or something. And uh, we was at, we was, yeah, we was at the mall out there. What is that, the Oakdale Mall, I think? And um, somebody got mad at us or something, flipped us off and called us niggers or something. And I just laughed. I like was hysterically laughing. I, I've gotten to a place where it's like, I don't care about that stuff. So many people put emphasis on those incidents, but that doesn't do anything with policy. That's not why I'm not getting a loan. That's not why um, people like me are getting denied jobs. It's a system and it's, that doesn't do anything. It's the mindsets of people. The reason why he called me an N-word or his perspective of me is what really is the issue. But most times when that's said is to get a rise out of me and you're not going to, I'm never going to give you that satisfaction to know that you made me mad. I'm going to show you that you're not going to get me mad. And so that's something I learned playing basketball. I, no one's ever going to get in my head. I'm going to get in your head. And I feel like when someone's intentionally trying to get in my head, good luck. And so I definitely have a, I can identify, definitely have a different perspective than a lot of people. When I tell that to other black people, they're like, yeah, right. I'm getting mad. But I, I look at the big picture. I'm about, I understand racism is not individuals. It's a system. It's something that was brought up. And when you look at things individually, you'll never get a, a solution. You have to handle things from a big picture and, and deal with mindsets and things like that. So not bothered by that. I'd rather talk about things that are going to change policies. Thanks for the question though, man. That's good. Uh, Aaron Ekloff, um, uh, Aaron's Asian American and she asks uh, what are some resources for my kids under six to understand what's going on in the world and how to teach them diversity acceptance of others and standing up for others especially since my kids are growing up in a mainly Caucasian community I don't know when you find some let me know <laughs> now the only in all honesty the only resource that I know for kids or six is the parents we're the resource. We've been having conversations with our kids. Um, we try to make sure that our daughter has books that are multicultural and that not even just black kids, but from all different cultures so they can have a, a well-rounded perspective. It's our responsibility to make sure that our kids have a well-balanced perspective on life. And so flooding them with differences, I, I think, is the key and to have those conversations. And when they ask something that seems out of place, don't react, but let them know like it's okay because they need to know. Um, something that's brought up in that book that I told you guys, uh, why all the kids um, sitting together in a cafeteria or whatever. It's a story where she's in a grocery store and um, a white lady's kid goes, hey, mom, why are those kids dirty? And because she had never seen black kids and the mom got so embarrassed and was just like, oh, don't say that, don't say that. But that was a learning opportunity. She's a kid. They don't know. They have never seen that. They've never experienced that. And so you teach at a young, what I've learned that white parents teach their kids don't talk about race because it's like a, you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to step on any toes. But all that does is prohibit us from being able to have dialogue. Like, and that's something I've learned, something that I usually do, but I'm being really cautious because I don't know you guys like that. <laughs> it's a different situation, but I'm very intentional. Like, so around work, it, it took them a while, but they get it. I make racial jokes. I, I point out race all the time. And it, at one point, the, the, the teachers were a little uncomfortable, but they understand me and they understand we have, and I built a relationship before I did this, but they know like, and they're to the point where like, it helps them to be comfortable to talk about race. It helps them to be comfortable because they were brought up to not do it. And the only way anything is going to change is by conversations and by having these, this dialogue. And if you're afraid 
to offend, then you can't grow. And so I would just encourage everyone to make sure your kids are getting a well-rounded um, perspective on life. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. Don't be afraid to let them ask questions. Let them, you know, share how they feel. Let them, you know, express that stuff because those are learning opportunities. And if you don't, if they don't learn, then they're going to learn from the media. And that's definitely not going to go good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I know. Yeah. Uh, maybe on Saturday, I forget it was, we had a good conversation with our kids about what's going on and talking about it. And I know I've heard from other people doing the same thing with their kids. And I think hopefully it sounds like more and more parents are doing that right now of talking to their kids about, Hey, some people are treated differently because of the color of their skin. And, and this is what's going on. And, and this man was murdered by the police and this is not right. And so I agree. I think it does start with us as parents having these difficult conversations and it was awkward <laughs> to start talking about it. Um, you know, but I think it's so good to do that. That's good. Yeah. Um, other questions? Anyone else? I have a question. Um, what do you think is going to change? Like, are you hopeful for change? Because, I mean, people have burned up. I was around when Rodney King got beat up. I was around prior to that. Basically, I've been here all my life. So, and it's the same rioting, but this feels a little different. And I don't know because the video was so vivid and there was no, like in other cases, it was like, this might have happened or he may have had a gun like they were asking or he may have spooked them or they got scared, whatever the story is that people are afraid of black men. Because I had my 14 year old in the car with me and at first, I'm not American, I'm Liberian. And I thought that uh, all my life, I've been here since I was nine, I'll keep hearing, these people are so racist, but all my friends who embraced me when I first came here were whites. The blacks were calling me, you African booty scratcher, you African this, you African that. So that was a little weird to me. Two, I was never thought that people could dislike you for the color of your skin. So I was like an innocent nine-year-old. So I would say, why do these people blame everything on race? Why is it everything on race, right? So then it happened to me. And then it did not feel good. And that was where my eyes opened. I'm in the car with my son, he was only 14, so almost like six feet tall. And the cop, and he had a hoodie on and he was laid back in this passenger seat and they pulled, him over, they pulled me over coming from Abbeville. They just pulled up, the guy just pulled us over. And he came with his weapon and came to the car. He was like, let me see your ID. He came to my son's side, like, let me see your ID. I was like, what ID? He's 14 years old. And he took, you could see the shock in his face that he was embarrassed. His whole face turned red. So I'm like, are you looking for somebody? Did he, did, you know, did he look like somebody? And then I showed him my ID, he ran and obviously he didn't find anything, but he was just like, I'm, I'm so sorry, you're his mom, I'm so sorry. Um, he couldn't give me a reason why he pulled us over. And then it's happened at work, where I'm even work at school, I'm always the only black person in every setting. I don't know if, it just happens to me all the time. I don't care how big the company, I will be the only black person. If I'm in class, I'm the only black person. It's just always been, I think so I've observed a lot of things that have happened and stuff. 
and with this here, everybody's running around, you know, this is happening. Truly, if it wasn't for COVID-19, I probably would have been out there because I felt like change was happening. Something was happening and we're not taking part in it. Like me and my kids are not participating in something like that. But I just want to know from your perspective, what do you think is going to change or do you feel hopeful um, when Trayvon Martin got killed? I thought that was going to be it because that was the most ridiculous thing to this day to me. And so, and then there was another video with a cop beating this guy, I don't know what his name was, but he was sitting in the jail and it just, that video traumatized my daughter to this day. So I just need to know from your perspective, does this feel different? Or do, are you hopeful there's gonna be change? And not so much being a Christian doesn't make you stupid because it makes you look stupid as a Christian because sometimes you just wanna forgive and you can't carry that grudge. I can't, you know, a lot of people don't take space in your heart you know, because it makes you bitter. But just honestly, do you feel there is some kind of change or does this feel different or is this the same old, same old? Um, <laughs> I think that this is getting a lot of attention. One, because the video was, like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's, I still want to hear, and I'm not even, I want to hear somebody's pers another perspective on the video because obviously I have some bias, but I, I just need something to compare it to because it was just like, I just don't see how you can look at this video and think anything different than what the heck is like, this is wrong. And so I think that's another, it was so clear and so blatant and the guy looked just like he just didn't care. And it was just excessive. It just was so bad on so many levels. And then you have the level, the impact of social media. And then now you have a lot of, celebrities who have huge followings who are starting to speak up you get lebron james and even like cardi b and some of these huge people that are saying stuff now becomes a trend and like our society is about trends and so it's just trending and so that's another reason why it's so big um and then now you have the reactions and all that stuff as far as change um the guy i was telling you about that i was on the phone with that was on the bridge because uh, I've been I make sure I check up on them all the time if they're safe and stuff and see how they're doing. And he said that he's kind of getting frustrated. It's like, well, we've been doing all this, but what's the plan now? What's what are we going to do? And, and what I've noticed is you get an, an emotional reaction a lot of times. But then as soon as that emotion goes, then it's like it just kind of fizzles out. And that's why I'm not really that I mean, I respect it and I think it's necessary, but for me personally, I'm not at a place in my life where I have to go protest. I have to go because I, I'm on a different, I'm in a different section of the work that needs to be done. And I'm trying to organize and figure out what can be done systemically. How can we make change? Let's start voting. Let's start educating ourselves. Let's start talking to the big fish that have actual power to do something and not just venting. But venting is very necessary. So it's not to diminish or put a certain value on which one is better or anything like that. Sorry, hold on. But that's just where I'm at. And I get hopeful when I hear things on a systemic level being addressed. So, okay, this happened to him. So what are we going to do? I don't even care all the way. I mean, it would be nice, whatever, but cops getting convicted or going to jail, that, that sounds like revenge. I don't, that doesn't do anything. I want to hear a policy that says if an if a, a officer is doing something illegal, 
that results in a death and you're another officer that's there, you're held accountable at the same level. I want to see something like that put into policy. Or I want to see if you have connection to any kind of like, like that guy had a, a, a record of, 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 of other offenses and things that he's done. He's had many complaints. He should not even been there. And so just like every time a black person gets killed, they want to bring up their criminal record and that devalues them as a person and they just need to be killed. Why aren't we bringing up these records on these cops that have previous incidents or things like that? And so it's, it's a lot of those things. And when I hear things of systemic change, I get hopeful. For me personally, I don't even look at the system. I honestly don't believe anything's going to change from that perspective. Sorry, that's just how I feel. I look at things individually. I put my energy into individuals. And individuals, if individuals can change, then they can change the circles around them. And then if you look at it from that perspective, then you can actually see change. If I can impact an individual enough to where they impact their circle and all these little circles start combining, then you start actually having something that you can physically see. And then maybe through that down the line, you start seeing more change in policy. But attacking the system of racism and injustice in the United States as a whole you're going to go crazy. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. We keep trying to attack the big thing and not break it down to a smaller size. So can there be change? I believe I will see change in my circle and what I impact on a day-to-day basis. And I, I'm okay with that. As far as the whole thing, that's a headache. You'll, you'll just get crazy. And I think that's what my experience at Northwestern taught me because I went to a place where I don't ever want to go um, again of how I felt. Good. That's good. Thanks. Um, Kristen asks, do you have any suggestions for a young black female who grew up adopted in a white family and grew up in an area with a very low black population, but how does she come to terms now with her feelings as a 20 something recent college graduate, you know, now is living in the world and seeing that she's treated differently, perhaps when she walks into her store and, you know, just on her own now, um, and maybe embracing more of her black culture, um, you know, now that she's no longer living with her white adopted parents, um, just someone who wants to kind of re or engage with her culture. Um, and I know you're not a young adopted female, um, <laughs> but um, uh, and specifically, the, uh, my wife has three sisters who are adopted, and they're all in their twenties now. And I think they are they are going through this of just. You know, they grew up in my wife's family and it was, it was a great household, but now they're out in the real world, you know, as young black women in their 20s. And I think they're just trying to figure out, you know, uh, how do I engage with my culture and, and what's my heritage? Um, yeah, I don't know. Just any thoughts? Yeah. Um, and most of my stuff comes from, I'm not a big bookworm. I'm not a, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of my friends are just like, oh my God, they just inhale books and they just never forget a word in the book. And I'm not that person, but I'm very relational. And so I had the privilege of, of living with and being around some super, super intelligent people. And I just pretty much just soaked everything in like a sponge. And so majority of my information comes from learning from others, learning about their cultures, talking to people that are biracial, talking to people that are having relationships with people that are adopted. So that's just pretty much where I, I come from. I'm just coming from experience and relationships that I've built over the years. Um, my biggest thing that I would say to them, they have to get educated. They have to get in touch and plugged in to who they are. It is absolutely, it is just, man, like they have to. It is imperative that they do that. If they want to have any kind of comfort 
or if they want to have any kind of um hold on one second no sweetie wait you gotta have mommy do it go do it have mommy do it real quick okay yeah sorry i think i gotta set up her she has a class meeting or something um yeah, they have to get plugged in. Um, my sister isn't adopted, but my sister used to fight me about all of this stuff. She would get so angry with me. Eddie, you're just always making it about race and love. I mean, just angry, slam the door, don't talk to me type stuff. She ended up going to Korea. She's actually still in, she's in Shanghai right now. She went to Korea and she experienced what being black was real quick because there was like, they were coming up to her, calling her fat and black, like in her face and just all kind of stuff. And then she got around other people who, because they were from the United States and because they were people of color, they just got real close together. And she learned, she started educating herself. She started learning. She came back talking. I was like, whoa, 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 who is this person? This is a total different person. And so they need some kind of experience. They need something, some education and some kind of experience. They need to get plugged in. And um, it's kind of just like a floodgate. The moment when you start getting that information and then you start getting involved or plugged into something, it just it's like a floodgate. And you just start understanding and you start finding your way and you kind of just flow with it. But without that education, without that personal experience then you're going to constantly feel like, you know, you're on the outside. Um, this comes from uh, Charlene Miller. Um, she asks, how can I deal with the anger of being beaten by a white man and choked out? This is all super triggering. And I realized I didn't heal from it, even though it was two years ago. I know that was a difficult question, but I didn't hear all of it. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, she asked, how can I deal with the anger of being beaten as a young 20-something uh, black woman by a white man and choked out? This is all super triggering, and I realized I didn't heal from it, even though it was two years ago. Is this a person of color? Yeah. You're the, you're the pastor, Eric. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. It's, uh, I think that's where we as Christians have the upper hand because we do have the source of something that can heal those hurts and those pains. I think the first, the biggest thing that you could do is act like you're not hurting. That's the, probably the worst thing you can do, but you definitely need to acknowledge that hurt. It is real. And you have to try to get help with dealing with that process. And it's something that just takes time. It takes growing in your faith. It takes growing as a person. And it, it literally just takes time. I think if you can acknowledge that, it's something that's an incident and it's something that was wrong, but it's not the world. Um, then that's a step. But I mean, I don't, that's probably as far as my level of, of understanding will be able to take you in that. But I mean, I would definitely see a counselor to um, deal with that particular thing and, and process through that hurt. And I think once you process through that hurt, it can help you move on. I will right, we'll go a couple more minutes here. Um, and I, I'm super appreciative of Eddie sharing and getting hit with tough questions. Uh, yeah, I'm perfect. Fine. These are actually, I was expecting some, some, some more. So if somebody has some of that real stuff, I mean, not to say these aren't real, but I know there's some stuff people are thinking in their head. They're like, can I ask them or should I? Yeah. Ask uh, I'm telling just ask away. There's one, one more question here in the chat. And, uh, and I've heard this same question asked a lot of times. Uh, someone, uh, Kristen asked, why is it viewed as not necessarily helpful to say, well, all lives matter? 
oh, you guys actually brought this up. I'm going to read this. <laughs> I saw this and I was like, man, I'm saving this just in case this comes up uh, in this conversation. I'm like, where is it? I might have to go on my page real quick. I seen something that this guy put and I really want to know people's perspective on it because I thought it was amazing and I thought it answered that question very well. All right, here it is. It says, if you are a Christian and can't hear Black Lives Matter without feeling the need to respond with the criticism that all lives matter, then crack open your Bible and hit up Luke 15. Don't have it handy, let me summarize. There are a hundred sheep, but one goes missing. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after one. The 99. But what about us? Don't we matter? Of course, the 99 still matter, but they're not the ones in danger. The one is. I'll say it again. Black lives matter. And so that's really what it is. It's not to say that all of them don't, but we're saying that one particular, one particular group is kind of not mattering at all. And if we all matter, and that's another thing I saw, if you're somebody saying all lives matter, then why aren't you protesting this life? Because it matters. And there's been one particular group at this moment that is singled out as the one lost or the one that's being targeted. And so we have to unite around that one to make sure they can join the rest of the hundred. Oh, uh, another question. So what do you say to those who want to affirm Black Lives Matter, but maybe feel uneasy about the organization Black Lives Matters and some of the things maybe that organization stands for. Um, and, and I've heard all kinds of things. I went to Black Lives Matter, the organization's uh, belief section last night, and because I've heard that they want to defund all the police forces. I've heard that they want to take away all um, private education groups. Um, like lots of different things. And so there are white women bloggers out there who are talking that, you know, pastors should never use the hashtag Black Lives Matters because of all these things they stand for. So what do you say to that? Um, just, yeah, about the organization versus the hashtag versus the idea that Black Lives do matter, uh, but maybe someone who is uneasy about um, what that organization may or may not stand for. Yeah, I'm not a big organization person. I'm a, I'm a cause person. And so I believe that all lives matter and I believe that black lives matter. I don't necessarily say I'm a part of black lives matter, the organization. Organizations tend to always get corrupt and have some kind of something especially when money is involved and there's too much i don't even like donating to organizations that i don't know for like you know what's happened a lot of these big ones then people just want to get raises and all this stuff and then the, the point or the foundation of what it was for is lost so i think that's fine but i would say don't let a company deter you away from what the, the point of what it is black lives matter if you want to support and you believe that statement then what are you going to do to support how you, your belief and it's in multiple ways outside of the actual organization that's good. that's good um yeah we'll wrap up here soon uh other questions anybody else so i work mainly with children and you said that you worked with children to like bridge communication and um 
relationship. And I, I don't work as a teacher. I work mainly with children, like for Sunday school or for a Bible study. And we do have a few black children. I treat them like I treat all the children. Am I missing something? Have I missed something? I heard everything except for the last part. I'm sorry. Everything except for the last part. So I got I, my daughter logged in, so I'm focused. Oh, Alay, close oh. my door, sweetie. So I treat the, the black children like I treat all of the children, any child. It, am I missing something? Okay, I got you. So you're asking basically, do you treat kids differently? Yeah, well, you said that you had to work with, because I'm white, we have some black kids, and you had to work with relationships mm -hmm. to, to kind of bridge that. I mean, was, so is there something that I am missing? Or was this just like relational, certain teachers with certain kids? Um, so I'll ask you this question. Do you think that all kids should be treated differently? Uh, yeah, I think kids get treated based on, I, I, you have to get to know a kid to know how to deal with children. That's what I exactly. feel. Exactly. 100%. And that's where race and culture comes in because a part of getting to know that kid, you learn about who they are. And so that is going to require a different way of relating and reaching them just as if you were to take two white kids, one came from a um, higher socioeconomic status, one came from a lower socioeconomic status, single parent, or maybe they have, um, they're in a, um, they have two moms or something like that. You have to know those kids and you have to deal with those kids differently. And so a lot of teachers are like saying, well, no, I just want to treat all my kids the same. Well, every training in teaching tells you otherwise with learning styles and with backgrounds and different things, they promote you Oh yeah, I actually, I was going to be a teacher too. Did I say that before? So I took a lot of ed classes, but um, you know, they teach you about learning styles and they teach you about the differences and how important it is to do that. But then when we get in the classroom, we feel as though we just treat everyone the same. And that's a huge a mistake that I see happen. We have to treat kids differently. Like for me personally, I'm not African. I have, I don't have any African culture. I don't know anything too much about it. However, because half of my students are from Liberia, from Nigeria, um, from the Congo, like all those different places, I have to go learn their culture. I have to go learn so I can relate to their parents. So I, I can't just treat them like a black kid that I grew up with because we have different experiences. And so being willing to learn from them, um, going to do my own research and finding and having those conversations, I am going to treat them differently based on where they are. And I'm going to treat all the kids who I have in that room, but it's my job as the educator to learn all of them and then create a place where everyone is accepted and where everyone feels comfortable expressing that and everyone feels celebrated in those differences. And I can't make them be what makes me comfortable or just make them all be the same. They have to have room to be their own individuals. And that's culturally, racially, gender, background, whatever it is, one, uh, extrovert introvert just all the main differences that come along with that that's what we have to navigate as a teacher okay hi eddie hey i thank you for doing this by the way um no this question actually comes from my brother who lives in colorado and he is a, obviously a white man and he's like super struggling with the whole white privilege thing like he's just having a hard time wrapping his brain around it 
Um, but he just sent me a Twitter link and it's a link to, I don't know where this happened in the country, but it's a bunch of white people kneeling on the ground, all chanting together. Like I renounce my white privilege, like they're laying it down. So his question, and I'm speaking this for him cause he couldn't hop on the call right now, but his question is just like, how do you, res how do you respond to that? Does that feel legitimate? Do you just kind of roll your eyes at it? Like, cause how do you know anything's going to change? Or does that, does that speak to you that they, no, not right now, that they're processing through it or working through it? I, I just, I wondered what your reaction to that would be. And he wondered that as well and asked me to ask. So I'm super sorry. I missed the part about them being on the ground. I heard about on the ground and then I had to, I got sidetracked with some stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. I totally get it. Okay. <laughs> I'm yelling at my five-year-old. That's totally okay. So they, a bunch of white people in some city somewhere, I don't know where, um, are just kneeling on the ground with their arms up, renouncing their white privilege. Like, stop talking to me, please. Um, I'm glad that's happening, their... so I don't feel like I'm the only one. Yes. I know, right? Oh, Keep up, kids. Let's go. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure it's at a protest somewhere, a um, bunch of white people kneeling down saying, I renounce my white privilege. And my brother, who is struggling with the concept of white privilege for the first time in his life really wrestling through it he's just like how you can't just you can't just like take the white privilege out of you like what does right. that even mean like so he's recoiling at that saying like is that even real what is that so we just wondered what your response is when you hear white people say i renounce my white privilege and especially I mean, if I'm being honest, if I saw thousands of white people kneeling on the ground doing that all together, I'd be like, oh, this is like summer camp when everyone accepts Jesus. Like, this Trendy. is just not. Yeah, it's really cool to do this right now. So I don't know. Thoughts? Um, I'm trying my best with where I am in life not to come to conclusions. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that is my first reaction. This is like it's trending. But um, my love language is acts of services. So that sounds nice, and if that's what you got to do to proclaim it, that's cool, but I'll just be watching to see how you're going to do that on a day-to-day -day basis, and yeah, sure. I wouldn't feel make anyone feel pressured to think that that's how they need to do it or what they need to do. Um, actions speak louder than words. If you're saying that's what you want to do, then let's look at it, or I'd ask them, so what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Let's get practical. How do you know what does that look like from here on out after you just did this theatrical thing and you did that? <laughs> Same thing with like baptism. You got, you get baptized and that, that doesn't mean just like, you know, your life is never going to be the same. Like you have to go work it out on a day-to-day -day basis. And so you proclaimed it, you showed everybody like, this is what I'm doing, but now you have to go live it. And so yeah, they want to do it, have fun, but are you going to do it? Yeah. So that's kind of what my feelings of it is. I didn't know they were doing that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't click. He just sent me a Twitter link and was like, can you ask this question? I didn't click on the link. I didn't read into it, but I could see the image that some journalist had posted. So well, Colorado has legalized marijuana. So maybe there's a correlation. <laughs> <laughs> Entirely possible. <laughs> Thank you again. <laughs> no problem. And I don't, I don't, I know sometimes when we have these conversations, people feel like, oh, we're wearing, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I promise I'm fine here and there. I got to go do something with my wife or my kid, but I'm really not rushing. I'm totally fine. We're good. Don't feel like that. Like I said, if this is an opportunity. I feel like you guys are good people. Uh, I feel like from what I've met with Pastor Eric, you seem genuine and I'm not going to put my energy into something that I feel like is just people trying to, like I said, appease their or something like that so 
I'm I'm fine. Don't feel like you're pressured to leave me alone or I'm doing too much. I'm I'm good. All right, Eddie, I, I got a question for you. Oh, or no, go ahead, Rachel. Go ahead. No, as far as the white privilege thing, and I've seen that, um, I think that speaking up is like some of the actions to the whole white privilege. Like he was saying, a white guy or a white person get pulled over and they're able to speak to the cop and ask questions as to why am I being pulled over and they're able to answer that question without slamming you to the, you know, to the floor or anything like that. Because I was watching a video and a, a, a black teenager had knelt down in front of the police and they rushed towards him and this little teenager, another white girl, she jumped in front of him and they kept pushing her. They, they, the force they were coming towards him kind of slowed down when they saw her and she stooped her ground so that they won't hurt him. So I think like speaking up is some of the changes, you know, um, you know, whether it's at work or anywhere else, if you see wrong, I don't think this is a George Floyd problem or a black problem. I think it's a human problem. This is a human problem. Just to watch another human being being killed in broad daylight, murder in broad daylight everybody's standing around feeling helpless because the boys in blue have guns, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. So I think that people speaking up is part of, you know, using your white privilege because you are in a different bracket, whether you, you know, it's a mental thing, it go, you know, it goes all the way back. So it is a mental thing. If you see something's going on or you see someone, you know, the cop doing something, just ask, like, what did he do? Just ask a question, just, or, you know, at work or anywhere else, just stand up and say, you know, what you did right there wasn't right. You know, that's just my two cents <laughs> to the whole thing. That's good. I heard the end part. I heard, can you guys hear me? Yep. We're good? No? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I had my, um, my daughter is on a Zoom thing or whatever, and it only is working with the mic. And I had the mic, and I can hear them saying, I can't hear Leia. So I had to go <laughs> get on the mic. And Tiffany doesn't really know how to do any of that stuff. So I'm so super sorry. But I, I did keep, catch the last end of it. And I, I agree, like speaking up, having that white privilege to be able to say, do, the, the choice of saying, should I speak up or should I not? Like that choice, whereas a person of color, if you don't speak up, it could be completely devastating for you so the choice to have to speak up is not even there you have to and so that's part of it and um a small little plug <laughs> i um i had been working on a youtube channel for a while and um i just finally uploaded my first video but it's about this and uh, something i said in there was like realistically you have you know you have a system of uh, of oppression going on and you have a group of people who are being oppressed and then on the other end, you have a small group of people who are actively and overtly oppressing, but like the vast majority of the people are in the middle and they're just not saying anything. And what happens when they don't say anything, it just helps the system go along. But if those people, the majority who are silent would speak up, then you don't have an issue because the majority is gonna end up coming out on top. But because so many people are silent are choosing whether they should or shouldn't say anything or I'll just you know stick to myself and mind my own business that's why you continue to have a system happen the way it is and until more people decide to stand up and use their resources and use their privileges and use their 
power that they may have in their circles to change things is just going to constantly be on repeat. Like you were saying earlier, there was stuff going on with the Rodney King riots. And then between that timeline, it just happens all the time. It's just going to keep recycling this this uh, pattern until more people start speaking up. That's good. Uh, another question for you, Eddie. Um, I've heard it said numerous times that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Um, as a church, our name Mosaic, you know, we, we believe in beautiful diversity and um, we've taken intentional steps to try to be even more multicultural, which, you know, um, is not just black and white. It's, it's every background, it's every ethnicity. Um, and, but what are things the you know, white evangelicals, white Christians, what could we be doing to help that? I mean, that our churches aren't so segregated that, um, there is more diversity in our churches. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Just, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, this is this is a big one. This is a conversation that I've had a lot of. This is one of the biggest things we talked about at, at Northwestern, too. Um, there's a difference between diversity and multicultural. And so a lot of people are focused on what it looks like, racial diversity. Well, we got, you know, this people here, we got our Blacks, our Asians, or, you know, look at how beautiful it is. We have all this diversity. But when you go there, you're at a white church like you know it and uh, and it's that's the difference and so how do you make something that's multicultural where no matter it's almost to where you create a different culture a different atmosphere to where when you get there you can't identify and say this is a black church or this is a white church but this is like something different i've experienced that one time in my life i was in in college there was this um this conference called nickum slick it was national multicultural leadership conference or something like that and um it was a bunch of the kids who had their like diversity departments on their school and they they and there's a christian organization too so all the christian colleges and you get together and so you have all these people who are about multicultural um christianity and stuff like that and we got together and did like a worship service where it was kind of like it wasn't no set band that they had it was just hey you play this you play this kind of got together and man, it was one of the best things I've ever experienced in my life. And I've never experienced that anywhere else ever again. And I really want that. And the reason why is because one culture wasn't dominated. It was literally unified. And there was different kinds of instruments and different people singing. And that's kind of what I would say churches need to shoot for. But the only way that happens is if when you literally have a when the when the decisions are being made or when when uh hiring is happening or whatever it's from a multicultural perspective if a person if if one person or a group of people they all think the same culturally but then you try to make decisions for multicultural purposes it's never going to happen because you can only see your perspective it's not to devalue your perspective your perspective is is valuable but your perspective needs to be along with other people. Now you guys need to have the same motivations, the same intentions, the same vision. However, that different filter of their culture and their experiences is going to play into what, what songs you do, what message, how it's coming from, and just even having differences. Like 
you're gonna come up and be a specialist on this because of your experience and another person's gonna come up and they're gonna be a specialist in this area because of their experience. But as a whole congregation, by getting all of that on a consistent basis, we're all learning from each other and growing and then that creates a multicultural atmosphere. But it's gonna be difficult for people who are different from you to come into the congregation and feel comfortable. If I'm being completely honest, try to be completely honest, um, me and Tiffany actually struggle at the church. And the only thing that keeps us like still interested is because we believe that you guys are cool people and that you have genuine hearts. But on the, the practical side, the flip side, it's uncomfortable because it's very white dominated. And so from our perspective, we know we want to be somewhere where we, we feel comfortable. We feel like, you know, is this, and it has to be a give on, on, you know, on both sides. And so if that's something that you're serious about doing, which I actually believe you are, you have to find a way to create when decisions are being made about the church and decisions are being made about directions you're going to take. And you're saying, take uh, intentional steps towards that. You have to have different people making those decisions. Ultimately you're the pastor. So obviously things filter through you, but you definitely want to have a combination of perspective on there because you want somebody to come in and, you know, they're going to feel the presence of God and that's nice. But then it becomes like, well, okay, I don't know how many times I can hear a song like that, or, or I need something like this, or, you know, it, be, it, it honestly, because we are human, we all have our things that we're comfortable with, and no, nobody should be comfortable all the time, but we also shouldn't be uncomfortable all the time, and there needs to be a blend, and that is something that takes time, but you have to set up a struct, the leadership structure to where it's a multicultural decision being made. And then it's more to, I mean, and also with the visuals, when you see somebody of color, you see somebody that looks different, that's a good thing too, but it has to go to the next step of what you present. Um, I did some presentations a little bit ago at the church I used to go to for branding. And um, it's a thing called, I think, brand perspective. And it's not about what you believe, it's what people perceive. And you can believe and put off all you want. What are people getting from it? And if people are getting something different than what you're trying to show them, then you have to be willing to say, well, why are they getting that? Let's see what we can fix. And yeah, that's what I would say about that. So that's not like, a, I'm not saying you guys are terrible or anything like that, but I think that <laughs> tremendously um, is, is in that because you can be the greatest person in the world, Eric, and you are a great dude, but at the end of the day, you're you. And I think that's God's intent because when it becomes about an individual, then they get glory and it's not about, the individual it's about coming together unified and we represent christ because christ is he's multi he's not the same you know he's all over the place and so us coming together we really represent christ fully by coming together but when we are individuals and we get all the praise or it's about us we can only go so far and i think that's intentional by god so that he gets the glory and when you want true things that represent god it's about unity and coming together that's good I think, too, with the church, you kind of feel invisible. I was at that church. I've been in the church when it started. It's just just recently that I felt a little included in things. Eric knew my name from the day one, and that was one of the prayers to God. Let me see if anybody in this church would know my name. And I know you know how it feels to so just feel invisible. You're there. Nobody knows you. I don't care how many times. To this day, people always ask me, is this your first time? Is this your first time? I just say yes every time because for Chrissy and Eric, they were there. But honestly, what I pray for 
with, you know, telling God, if this is where, because you have to test the spirit, if this is where I belong, let me see this, let me see that, let, you know, and all of it filled the box. And that's why I kept coming to the church. But yet, it, you felt invisible. There are people then, you know, if you're in a predominantly black church, when I was in the African church, if somebody else came, we made it a point and intentional to make sure we're constantly, you know, to make you feel comfortable, to make you feel like, you know, we recognize that you're here and all of that. But I didn't get that for the longest time that I was in, you know, it's just most recently, like I said, feeling. So I think that that goes to, you know, not feeling welcome. I, I saw other black family come and go. I saw another Liberian family come and go and Eric was the only person that embraced them. And you can't go to church for a pastor. You can't go to church for just the people in the church. You have to come because, you know, the spirit led you. But like you said, how many times, you know, so for me, I just kept going because I knew with my heart and soul, this is where I needed to be. I don't know if for some reason it was a strong conviction that no matter who speaks to me, who doesn't speak to me, who doesn't bother with me. Yeah, I could have been going around saying hi to everybody, but again, <laughs> it's like, you just got to feel invisible there. And that's some of the reasons, you know, if you're going to have a multicultural church, you're going to have to have people, you know, be intentional about being welcoming. There were some people like, you know, the same four people still speak to me to this day. After that, that's it. <laughs> so it's just one of those, just my two cents again. <laughs> I, definitely, I, I definitely understand that. Um, And just for more perspective, it's not, just a white church thing. I came from a predominantly black church and we had similar conversations where they kept saying, well, this is, we're a multi-dimensional church. No, we're not. We are a, a bougie older black people group that, you know, heavily Pentecostal. And you think like, this isn't, if you don't fit that mold, you're not welcome here. And I was there and my uncle was the pastor and I had known people for years and I still felt like an outsider all the time. So it's, Mm -hmm. you, you can't say like I would tell them all the time this is where part of my conflict came like you can't say you're a multi-dimensional church and you want everybody but you don't change anything to include everybody and that's why young people weren't coming and that's why people other people of different cultures or races were coming because we're clearly telling them you don't belong here when they walk through the door and they get the same thing every Sunday and so it's just perspective it's not just a white church thing it's a, a body of Christ issue as far as coming together and being willing to say, I don't have the way, I don't have the solution, but I am a part of the solution and how can we come up with it together? And that's, until we get there, just, we won't see it. So, all right, I'm gonna ask another tough question. <laughs> uh, as a pastor, and Rachel can attest to this, there have been times where maybe I just didn't speak out on it, but I got frustrated when it seemed like our white people were not making an effort to go talk to those who look different than them. And, you know, the, and, and I, I get it that we more naturally connect with people who look like us and talk like us and dress like us. But I mean, is that simply just people are, they don't know they're doing it. Do you think, I mean, and how do we combat that? Like, is it, is it conversations like this? Is it teaching on it that, hey, we need to get out of our comfort zones and you walk across the room to someone who looks different than you? Um, 
do you, uh, yeah, and I don't want to judge people's intentions, but is it on purpose or, you know, um, how do you help someone? Maybe they don't even realize that they're doing it, that they're, you know, someone like Rachel, who's been a part of our church for almost five years now. Um, and, you know, people who never have walked across the room to say hi to her. Um, I don't know what, I, I guess I'm asking, like, yeah, how do we help people who don't even realize maybe that they're, what they're not doing, I, if that makes sense. Um, well, people have different views on how things should be handled. My perspective from my experience and just living or whatever, I feel like it, everything comes through and the tone is set through leadership. When it's a priority, when it's something that you're set, you're, you're drawing the line, you're saying, this is what we stand for. This is what we're going to do. And we're not changing it. This is how it's happening. We're going to be intentional. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to, but this is what God wants us to do. And this is what we want to be. Um, I think then you start losing people who are not going to want to do that. But then you, the people you do have, you know, they're on board. And so then you start building a foundation with people that you know are on board. And once you establish, like, I know everybody who's here, we're on the same page. Now you can start moving and without resistance. And then you start building. And now when other people start coming in, they get, oh, this is what they do here. And they, they join suit. Or they like, I don't want to be a part of that. And they leave. But then you set the tone for whoever's coming. You already know they're on board. And I think that's the biggest issue. It's very difficult to try to move forward with something when everyone's not on board. But there has to be a, a coming, like a cleaning house, a time where you say, we're all, who's on board, who's coming, with, who's going to be a part of this? And I think that's where people need to have. I've had this conversation um, at the school I work with. It's a little different at a school because with teachers that are just like resistant, if you're not in the charter school where you, you know, you're competing to try to compete with salary, but you can't because you're funded, you don't get the same funding and all this stuff. You can't just say, well, we're not going to have a teacher because now we don't have a second grade classroom. And then now we lose all the money for all those kids. And so there's a lot of contributing factors to uh, a school that prohibits that kind of stuff from happening unless you get a lot of money somewhere. And so it's a lot more complicated. In the church, I would imagine it's still complicated, but I wouldn't say to that level because, I mean, it's not, it's not the same. So there does have to be some set where you create a foundation of like, this is who we are. And if this is the church you're with, and if you're a part of this, this is the direction we're going. Everything we're going to do is going to incorporate this. It's not going anywhere. And so you're either with us or you're not. It's not saying that, you know, we don't love you. It's not saying anything, but this is what I feel strongly by God, that this is what we need to do. And we have to be all on the same page. And and trust God to where it falls. But I, I do know that you're not going to be able to make much progress unless everybody's on the same page. And I do know that when you actually get on the same page and start moving forward, and then you, with the right foundation, then it becomes a lot different when it comes to growth-wise and you start getting what you need there. That's good. Thank you. Appreciate that, man. Um, well, that's 3.30. Uh, and I do want to respect Eddie's time. Uh, any final questions or anything? Otherwise... Uh, I want to thank Eddie for his time. Um... Thanks, Eddie. No problem. Thanks, everybody. Totally... Everybody for speaking up and asking questions. And it takes all of us, right? Yeah. And again, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm totally open. I hope I didn't run anybody off. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish we had got to some more 
questions I was hoping for, but I mean, it is what it is. Maybe we can do this again. Absolutely. Um, like I said, I'm all for it. I'm, I ha I'm not, I don't feel drained. I don't feel like any of that stuff. Please just, like I said, I'm open to it. I want to help as much as I can. I love everybody as sisters and brothers in Christ. Um, I have, I'm in a place in my life where I've accepted just what God has for me to do. And um, if it's God oriented or if it's something that I really feel strongly that is in his will for me to do, then it's not a burden. It's actually a joy. And conversations like these where once upon a time they used to infuriate me are actually very inspiring and encouraging. So I'm not in the least bit. I know the 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 perspective sometimes is, oh, well, we're just overwhelming them and I, I can I don't have a problem speaking up. And I'm telling you right now, I'm, I'm literally perfectly fine. I feel very, I, I love it. I love everything about it. I wish there was more people here. Where's Jeremy at? He's supposed to be here. Right? Right. He messaged me that uh, the link wasn't working, so he's going to catch the replay. Uh, so we recorded this, and we'll post it later so people can watch it. He um, can't talk during the replay. What is Jeremy I know, I know, I know, seriously. So we'll, we'll do this again say, for sure. Let me say something. Yeah. Just as a, a person who's been on a lot of podcasts and interviews and stuff, like it actually does help if you, Eddie, provide the questions for Eric to ask ahead of time. So you've mentioned twice now, like there's things that you wish we would ask. Clearly, we don't we don't know <laughs> what to oh, ask. No. So not, I think I, that I you're providing some. There's just typical questions that, depending on how outspoken the white person is, you get some. He's probably just, being really nice. Some serious, <laughs> like that's what, and that's what I guess I'm alluding to. Like I want those questions that make you angry. Like I want to, like I'm angry about this. Let me ask, but it it'll make you sound like maybe you have bad intentions or obviously people don't want to be associated with being racist. So they're afraid to ask. And I'm like, I want those questions that you I want know those questions. because those are the ones that, that those are the reasons why no one's saying hi to Rachel. Yeah. Right. Incident, I sure. say this, but when we were at the church one time and um, it was when we were going around to the families and asking the questions and Tiffany went and talked to some lady and she just didn't even say nothing to her. Like she said something again, oh. and just kind of like act like she didn't hear and look the other way. And then the husband jumped in and said something like, something like really short or quick. And then Tiffany was just like, okay, bye. And just left. So, I mean, uh, it's there. I mean, but I think that it's because people are not talking about why it's there. And I can sure. assure you, I'm a person that I don't care what you have. Like, it's not going to bother me. I, I, seriously, I don't know if it's something God gave me. If it's, I don't know what it is, but in all honesty, it does not. If you can be, if you're genuine about wanting to address it and you're willing to listen and have dialogue, I don't really care what you have to say. It's nothing's going to offend me as far as anything. I'm very confident in who I am with God and who I am as a person. I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to be any of those things. I love conversation and I love when people are open and honest. And I know that takes time. I know you guys don't know me, but I just keep stressing that. I'm so open to that. So if you guys know people in your church that are very outspoken and you know some of their views that they have, Eric, I'm sure, bring them on here. Like, yes, let's, let's, let's do, it. do it. Let's do it. I have a, um, a group of cousins, all of my cousins, I have a really big family and we've been getting together on, on Zoom to just meet and talk. But we have two meetings basically where in the daytime we talk, you know, all the superficial stuff, but then we call it the happy hour or the... Uh, the after hours one where all the cuts are getting really talk about some real stuff. And so that's let's awesome. have it I'm ready for it. Let's do it. I love that.
I Sounds good. That. I know you guys know the people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next time, next time we'll do the after hours one. Maybe next week we'll we'll mix it up and, and make sure we, we get into some of the deeper stuff. Maybe, but I think again, this was a really awesome. Really good. Yeah. It's a good first. That's not yep. to diminish anything there, and I mean that in all seriousness. This is very good questions. Um, I hope that I was able to help in some way. Again, I'm not an expert. I do have a lot of experience in this, but I'm not an expert by any means, and I can just only offer what I what I know. But all these questions were definitely, definitely something. I don't remember who it was, but I, the person about the, um, where they had that incident with a white person choking him or something, I really, that's been on my heart since they said it. Please go get some counseling about that. That's a, um, was that a younger person? I'll, I'll let her know. She got off the call, but yeah, I, I'm in relationship with her. Part? So I'll, yeah, 25. Yeah, yeah. For as I can tell, maybe that's why I am the way I am. I, am, I have a... Oh, sweetie, I'm on a, in a meeting, sweetie. You can't just do that, okay? Let, let daddy come out, okay? Go close daddy's door. <laughs> close the door here, okay? So dramatic. I don't even know what she said. But um, yeah, that person, please encourage that person was on my heart when they said that. So um, yeah, for yeah. sure. But thank everybody and like is that y'all don't know me, so I appreciate you guys asking these questions and stuff. And I'm definitely here to help anyway. So just let me know. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Okay. <laughs> you two talk offline. Okay, bye. Sounds good. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, yep. Thanks, Eddie. We'll, we'll talk soon here, okay? Okay.